0: If i haven 't met you before, which um, I may not have done, my name's Alan. Um, what do I do? I lead a small group here in this church. I also do a bit of Bible teaching uh, I'm doing a doctrine course at the minute, which is great fun who 's on the doctrine course? There you go. I thought you might whoop Just hands up you 're all very obedient. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, on we 're doing a bit of, uh, bit of teaching about the atonement, which I should probably use that uh, song in Christ Alone, because it's a, just a brilliant summary of what God's done for us on the cross. Um, so, yeah, um, I lead a small group here in this church in Partick, and if you're not part of a small group, get involved. It's hilarious. Uh, it's also, it keeps you on your toes. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's a really good thing to be, um, to be part of. You get to have community. It's like church in micro. It's a micro church. Yeah, my small group are being unruly at the back over there. Um, Moving on, I'm going to. If you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, If you have an app, open it. Um, If you've memorized it, summon it. Uh, We're going to Galatians 3, uh, verses 26 through 28. And as a departure from normal, I'm reading from the NIV and not the ESV. Yeah. (laughs) There's excitement in my life. Okay, so Galatians 3:26 through 28. So, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. All of you uh, for all are one. Sorry, for all of you who were baptized into Jesus into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right. I'm just going to pray and then we'll kick off. So, Lord, we thank you that um, that you love us, that you love us in a way that you demonstrated all those years ago on the cross, God, I pray for uh, this morning that as as we look at your word, that you would you would impart it to us, Lord, that you would bless us with it, that you would change us with it, that you would revolutionize us with it, Lord, I pray for all the other churches across uh, this great city of Glasgow who are preaching the gospel this morning, Lord, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would rush upon them. Lord, I pray that you would equip everyone who's preaching and teaching this morning to do so with fire in their belly. I also pray for my dad who's preaching in Newcastle about now. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we are a body and that we're a family. Amen. Excuse me. (coughs) Right. So, um, the title... For this morning's sermon, if you like titles, which I'm starting to, I'm starting to like titles, the title for this morning's sermon is The Fashion of the Christ, which will become explained as we go along. So what does this text tell us, this uh, Galatians 3? It's only, it's only three verses, um, but there's a lot in it. Well, when we look at any bit of the Bible, um, unless you're going to read the whole thing in one sitting... It's interesting and very useful to read the bit immediately beforehand, just to sort of get a bit, of the, a bit more of the story. Imagine trying to watch The Matrix, right? And you jump in at one hour, ten minutes, and you try to figure out what's going on. It'll be difficult. You'll struggle. If you watch the ten minutes beforehand, you'll get a bit more of the, the picture. Um, so, and the Bible's a lot more complicated than The Matrix, but at the same time, it's God's word to us today, so it's accessible to us. Well, immediately before this bit, Paul, who wrote this letter, is talking about how the law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments, um, that was given as a guardian. It was given as a steward, something to, um, to tide over the, the time until uh, the Messiah would come, until Jesus uh, would be revealed as the Christ. Uh, and so it's in this context that we're presented with a comparison. So, for example, in verse 23 just a couple of verses before our bit it says before faith came we were held captive under the law now this this was the state of play before jesus came so um before christ bc we were held captive under the law and but this in a different context is still the state of play today but without christ without christ being in people's lives Um, We are captive to the law, we are captive to rules and regulations, we're captive to the powers of the world, to governments, we're captive to ideologies, we're captive to ourselves, we're captive to religion. Christ not only ushers in a new time, a new time of um, grace and freedom and a love relationship, but he supersedes and does away with the old. He fulfills the law in its entirety. So, just before our bit, Paul's talking about, excuse me, I'm coughing all the time. Just before our bit, Paul talks about being captive to the law. And then we come to this bit, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Uh, And we're going to just look at these verses one at a time before we get to the big picture. So verse 26 says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And that first word, so, it points us back to something. It's a, a continuing argument. It's Um, the next point in a series of points. So, So, points us back to something, and it's talking about now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He obeyed the law in our stead. So, just as Jesus died in our place at the cross, he lived in our place in his earthly life, obeying the law on our behalf. Now, so when it says, um, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, that's making a comparison, because then it goes on to say, rather, we are all children of God through faith. And we hear this, we hear this phrase chucked around a lot. It's quite a, it's quite a, a common phrase. Well, I certainly hear it chucked around a lot. But what does it actually mean, we are children of God through faith? Well, let's find out. First of all, it's not the case for everyone. It's not the case for every man, woman, and child on earth. Every man, woman, and child on earth is God's creation. But there's a difference between being a creation and a child. And I'm going to go into this a bit, a bit more. But rather, being a child of God is something special and exclusive to people who are in Christ, um, to people who are Christians. So Ephesians 2 verse 3 uh, says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, all the wrath that was poured out on the cross is due to us, and we can't take it. We don't have 100% moral perfection in order to take the wrath of God, so it's a punishment. But now, because we're in Christ, we are not children of wrath, but rather we are children of God. Something's changed. When you go from being not a Christian to, excuse me, to being a Christian, something changes. There's, there's a, an ideology shift. There's a, a change of your position. There's a change of your Uh, standing before God. It's a a massive shift. It's a life-changing proclamation and declaration of who you are and who I am and who I am not. I am not a child of wrath. I am a child of God. And if you're a Christian here today, so are you. Brilliant. Yay! (laughs) Um, There's a very small cheer. Um, By way of comparison, and it's not a perfect comparison, but I was thinking about this, It's kind of similar to the plight of Nelson Mandela. (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) Um, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for 27 years in uh, South Africa for wanting South Africa to be uh, a democratic nation. And within a short time of him being released from prison, he was made to be president of the nation. Or if you want a biblical example, it's kind of like Joseph being sold into slavery in uh, Genesis the back end of Genesis, being sold into slavery, and he's the, you know, bottom of the bottom, he shares a, a cell with a baker and a winemaker, and he's, he's basically a no one, and then he gets taken into the palace and essentially made prime minister. It's going from a place of desolation to a place of, my life's going pretty well. Um, now, while both Joseph and Nelson Mandela didn't deserve to be in jail, um, we certainly deserve to be in our spiritual prison before we were in Christ. Um, And I don't want to dwell too much on what's past, um, but we were heading to destruction. We were in a car over which we had no control, and it was driving off a cliff, to use another metaphor. I like my metaphors. Um, And the only thing that stopped us, the only thing that turned us around, turned the wheel through 90 degrees, was Christ. Now, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, trying to figure out exactly what I think. Would we still worship Jesus if he hadn't saved us? I'm waiting for an answer. I don't know why. <laughs> um, by day, I teach RE. So when I ask a question, I expect people to put their hands up and shout out. So it's, I'm mixing my, uh, mixing my vocations here. Um, would he still be worth our energy, our worship, our praise, our time, our cash, our love if he hadn't gone to the cross for us? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is a resounding yes. Because we tend to think that Jesus is great because he saved us. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Jesus is great and he has saved us. But uh, him saving us, it's not the whole story. It's not even the main part of the story. Jesus is worthy of our worship regardless of what he has actually done for us. Now... We, and he would be worthy, rather, he would be worthy of everything that we can offer him, regardless of what we get in the transaction. Now, if we worship Jesus just because of what we can get out of it, we've made him a means to an end, rather than an end in itself. And that's an idol, and that's wrong. Um, Now, I agree that goodness looks like something. So, but because Jesus is the standard of goodness in the universe... He is worth our worship because of who he is. But because of who he is, because of his unfathomable love, is he left the perfect harmony of heaven and came to the chaos of earth and lived in our place and died in our place and rose as the firstborn from the dead. And we will follow after him. And it's because of this love that we can be children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a, a, um, a tangent, but it's an interesting tangent, which I was trying to um, explore. But listening to the phrasing of who is included in this passage and who is not, Paul's writing this letter to the churches in Galatia, um, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, French? No. That's the end of the sentence. People in France are, used to be called Gauls, as in Charles de Gaulle. Uh, there was a French colony in this bit of the world, hence its name, Galatia. Galatia. So that's, that's where it gets its name. Interesting trivia. Um, so Paul's writing this letter to all the churches in Galatia, and he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Now, no one is left out. He's not excluding, he's not saying that some, yeah, you guys over there, you're doing the projector, you're, yeah, maybe you're left out. Um, Sorry, Cy. Si. Um, <laughs> David. <laughs> um, yeah, he's not saying that, fortunately. Um, if you're a Christian, you're in. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. This is picked up later in the passage when Paul talks that all are one in Christ Jesus. There's no gray area. There's no maybe you are, maybe you're not. If you're a Christian, you're a child. And also, it's interesting when you read in the Bible to notice the tense of different things. So notice the present tense here. You are children of God. Right now, today, at 5 past 12 on a Sunday, you are children of God right now. There's not a carrot being dangled to entice us to perhaps one day becoming a child of God. Paul says that at this moment, right now, you're in. You're God's kid. You're a child of God. Now, being the inquisitive chap that I am, I I ask all sorts of questions here, such as, how does this happen? What on earth is... uh, How does this actually work? And fortunately, the Bible... the Bible gives us the answer in the text. It's through faith. In the Bible, faith is used to describe being convicted of the truth of something. So this means that all those who are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, is the Savior, is the Lord, they have faith in him. All of those who are convinced of that, that's faith and you're in. And this is my first point. I've got three points today. This is point one. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. And that's the end of the sentence. There's no probationary period here. There's no queuing system, which, as Britons, we, we, we don't like that. We like to queue. Me and Sarah went to see u two in Dublin a couple of years ago, and it's about two in the morning. We're waiting for a bus. And this guy walks past, and literally, I, not a word of a lie, his, the words out of his mouth were, a queue. I should queue. I'm Britain, I'm British, and I should queue. And he joined the queue. I, I, think, I hope he was drunk, to be honest. But because that's a, a startling caricature of British life, if he wasn't, um, and actually if he was, um, but there's, a, there's no queuing system to become a child of God. There's no being considered pile. There's no outbox or anything. It's, simple, it's as simple as Christian equals child of God, as much as it equals Christ is son of God. That's what it rests on. Or well, let me put it another way: How much does God love you today? Nine out of ten. Five out of ten? Prefer not to talk about it? <laughs> you see, if we are recipients of God's love based on how well we've done at reading our, reading our Bibles, how well we've done at praying, how well we've done at um, praying for the sick, seeing the sick healed, how well we've done at evangelizing, how well we've done at being holy, then we'd score differently every day, and often not that high. <laughs> Fortunately, how much God loves you has, has very little to do with you which in our sort of self-centered society, I want a microwave meal now kind of culture, that's, that's, uh, that's a clash. But how much God loves you is equal to how much he loves Jesus today. And that's a lot. Which is good. This is good. This is good stuff. So we have to get out of this, we're saved by grace, but then I have to perform to stay in grace, which is rubbish. Um, it's a... It's a false mentality, and it's, I'm the first to say it's something I struggle with. I keep finding myself going, "Oh, right, yes, it's grace. Oh, of course." And it's, but it's totally unbiblical to think that you know Christ paid the down payment, and then I have to pay him back over 30 years. It's not a mortgage. It's like at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Does anyone see this film? Has anybody not seen this film and wants to see it? Could you leave? Because. <laughs> Jan, it's been about 16 years, to be honest. You've had plenty of time. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil the ending. So same with Private Ryan, there's a mother of four. <laughs> and Jan, the mother of four, leaves. So you've got a mother of four who has four sons in the U.S. Army uh, during the Second World War. And uh, the war office learns that three of the sons have been killed in battle. And they also learn that the mother is going to receive three telegrams on the same day, saying that three of your sons have been killed in battle. And gallantly, the war office says, no, 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 we can't have this. There's a fourth one out there. So the U.S. Army deploys Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and seven other guys to go and look for this fourth brother, Private Ryan, Matt Damon. And at the end of the film, they're trying to get him and bring him home to his mum, so that they could have like, many years together, and so that she won't lose all four sons in the war. And at the end of the film, five of them have already died, and they found Private Ryan, and they're in the last firefight to defend this bridge. And there's, there's like, two bridges in Europe that haven't been exploded, and fortunately our heroes end up on one of them, and it's a big deal. Um, And they're defending the bridge, and Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, he gets shot. And he, with his dying breath, he beckons to Private Ryan, sort of leans in, and he whispers to him, earn this, and essentially saying, seven of us have died so that you can live. Pay us back. Now, in one sense, that's a, it's a very noble thing to do. Is like, you know, don't waste your life. It's, it's cost a, a great, it, you know, it's cost a great amount, but in another sense, it's a terrible burden to put on someone. It's a, yeah, seven people have died, so you can go home to your mum." That's a terrible thing to tell someone. Jan can go back now. Jan! Okay. Jesus makes no such demands on us. We are not indebted to Christ. We cannot and are unable to pay him back. He didn't, Jesus didn't die to front the payments, and we can pay him back at a later date in 12 easy installments. Consolidate all your debts into one lump monthly payment, as you see on ITV at 3 in the afternoon. But rather, grace is a gift. It's a, it's a free gift. It's, salvation is a gift. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, get saved and do what you want. Because there's that great bit where Paul says, should I keep sinning because I'm in grace? By no means. And I love the idea of this sort of Hebrew, like, you know, one of, the, one of the apostles just going, by no means, in a totally British way. I don't think it's that's quite how he phrased it. But there are requirements of us being children of God but these requirements have nothing to do. They contribute nothing to our status as being of, children of God. In other words, we're in for free. We don't have to earn it because all, all Christians are children of God. Okay, so on to verse 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. First thing to notice, again, is the inclusivity that crops up in this verse. All of you all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. Paul's pulling no punches and letting these Galatians know who's in and who's out, or rather, they're all in and no one's out, which is, and we have to hear this, because so often we disqualify ourselves over stupid stuff. Oh, well, I, I wasn't born in Scotland, so I, I can't, um, or, or I don't know, some, something equally as stupid, but what Paul's saying here is that we're all in and no one's out, and then the past tense of were, or those who were baptized into Christ. And there's an implication of a past action here. It's something has happened. Now, water baptism is tricky. It's a tricky subject, and I'm not going to unpack it now. I might do so on a different Sunday. Um, but put simply, water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. It's like a public celebration of a personal relationship, not dissimilar to a wedding. Um, And Paul's reference to baptism here is interesting because it kind of just comes out of left field. He doesn't preface it, he doesn't preface it by saying, and now we're going to talk about baptism, and he doesn't mention it anywhere else in the book. So it's just like stuck here, right in the middle of the passage. Um, But what we can say about baptism is that it's not the linchpin of salvation. That's not what your, your faith rests on. That's not what your salvation rests on. Baptism is a response to salvation. Now, that's not to say it isn't important. And if you're a Christian here today, and you haven't been baptized in water, it's something you should think about quite seriously, because the Bible links salvation and baptism very closely. Um, the, the New Testament says things like, um, they got saved and they got baptized. It's, like, it's a, a, a one-sentence kind of thing. Um, and we tend to separate them out, which I'm not sure is, is terribly helpful. But, it, and, but if you get baptized in this church, you'll have 100 people cheer as you have a very brief, fully-clothed bath in a school hall. And usually afterwards, we eat. So, it's good fun. Um, but if you haven't been baptized in water, think about it. Talk to, talk to one of the elders. Uh, talk to myself. Talk to, uh, talk to somebody about it. Because it, it's a good thing to do. It's a public declaration of uh, something that's hap- already happened on the inside. But verse 27 contains something even more mysterious and glorious than baptism. Which is this. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now there's a whole bunch of phrases in these three verses which sound a bit strange, but just within these three verses, the <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just within these three verses, there are things, uh, phrases such as being in Christ, which occurs twice, uh, being baptized into Christ, being clothed with Christ, and belonging to Christ. And again, what does it all mean? All these strange little phrases that he crops up. Well, what it means is that if you're a child of God, you're clothed with Christ you're surrounded by Christ. Now, the Greek word that talks about being clothed in Christ has the connotation of sinking into clothing. So, you know when it gets to wintertime, which in Glasgow is September, um, and you get out your big wintry jumper, and you just you put it on for the first time, and you just sort of sink into it and become one with it. Um, it it's kind of like that. Um, or when you get into, um, when you, you just change the, sheet, the sheets on the bed, and you get in, it's like, oh, Kind of that, that kind of feeling, like sinking into something. And being clothed with Christ is being about so consumed with Christ, so much one in identity with Him, that we get to revel in His righteousness and we get to approach the Father as He does with confidence. And This is different from becoming Christ. We are one with Christ, and yet we are distinct. So Christ is still Lord, and we are still creation. So it's not like... Um, in Hinduism, where all become one with Brahman, it's, there is distinction between creature and creation. But it's kind of like a marriage: husband and wife are one, but they're still two. There's union and distinction. So it's it, it's one of those strange kind of mystery things. Um, rather, being clothed with Christ is to, through faith, be identified with Him. To throw in your lot with Him. To put all your chips on Him. If you want to use a uh, casino metaphor. And this brings us back to our title, The Fashion of the Christ. So, yeah, John appreciates it. If you are clothed with Christ, you are wearing heavenly fashion all the time. Heavenly fashion is to put on righteousness, as Ephesians 6 and Job 29 say. We're not tricking God. We're not dressing up to sort of uh, attend a Star Trek convention and he's like watching to see if you're a real Trekkie. It's... Um, <laughs> (laughs) as if he would go to a Star Trek convention. Oh, dear. Um, We're not tricking him, but it's our wearing of Christ that that grants us access to the Father. Now, and what you've done there is force me to bring up Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) Ian Moorcroft... (laughs) Ian Moorcroft does a phenomenal impression of Mrs. Doubtfire. And... I'm sure he would be glad to receive five pounds per impression rendered for the remainder of the day. You're welcome. Now, in Mrs. Doubtfire, Robin Williams plays a man who's separated from his kids by divorce. And so he uses his skills as an actor and assumes the role of an old woman uh, and becomes the kid's nanny so he can spend time with them. And it's all very funny and very heartwarming. And, you know, it's a good film. Again, I've just ruined the ending, if you haven't seen it. Um, But in this film a father clothes himself in Mrs. Doubtfire to get access to his kids. In Christianity, we clothe ourselves in Christ to have access to the Father. And of course there are differences. Unlike in the film... <laughs> You've noticed that there are differences there. Unlike in the film, <laughs> our Heavenly Father knows full well what's going on. It's his idea. And secondly, rather than using our acting skills, um, we're claiming something that Christ has achieved in order, to, in order to clothe ourselves. But I think it's still a good parallel. And in case you're wondering, yes, even though we are clothed in Christ, we still need to wear actual clothing. <laughs> now, I wouldn't have mentioned that, except I, was, I Googled this, these verses, and I found a blog called Do Christians Need Clothes? And he he reasoned that um, we didn't need to. And I use the word we reasoned quite wrongly. Um, The blog said that because clothes were made by Adam and Eve to cover up their sin, and our sin is paid for at the cross, we no longer need clothes. Which is wonderful, yet frightening. And it's wrong because three reasons why it's wrong. Number one, Jesus never sinned a day in his life and wore clothes every day and I take comfort in that. Number two, in Revelation 19, John, uh, the apostle John, sees Christ in his glory, and he's still wearing clothes. Because, Because it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's still wearing clothes again, which is great. And again, in Revelation, John sees a vision of all Christians in glory wearing white robes. So, clothes are in heaven. So, even though we're clothed in Christ, keep your clothes on in church. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is my second point. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. My second point is, we are children of God because we are clothed in Christ. Sarah's wet in <laughs> All right, we're into the last section here. We're bringing it into land. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, to properly understand the cultural bombshell that's just been dropped on these Galatians, you have to look up the makeup of the churches that are being written to. Now, we read in Galatians 1 verse 2. That this is, it's not a letter to a particular church, like in Corinthians or Thessalonians. It's a letter to several churches scattered across an area. Um, And these had different ethnic groups. They had uh, French people, Romans, Greeks, Jews, and undoubtedly more than that. But that's what we know of for certain. So rather than writing to one church, being made up of one type of person, Paul's writing to several churches made up of several different Uh, people groups. If you could edit those out before you put them on the website so it doesn't sound like a dog's attacking me. (laughs) So when Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, this was scandalous to the hearers, to people who would have read this. What this is saying is that the former way that we used to think about people, uh, that we used to think about society as being made up of races, social classes, genders, That's gone out the window and been replaced with something else, a new way of thinking, which is all of you are one in Jesus Christ. Now, in the days when this was written, uh, the people of God had, for the most part, been determined along racial lines. You were either born Jewish or you weren't. And you could um, sort of become Jewish um, from a different nation, a different race, but there wasn't that much of it going on and there wasn't that much wiggle room. But on this side of the cross... Paul's teaching a mirror image of what Jesus modeled in his life, being that the people of God is not determined anymore by race, but by faith. And this means that all races, regardless of the history between those races, regardless of uh, dissimilarities, similarities, hatred, love, whatever, all races have an equal slice of the cake when it comes to being a child of God. So whatever your skin color, whatever your heritage, whatever your nationality it becomes permanently relegated to second place when you're clothed in Christ. So this is why things like apartheid in South Africa was wrong. This is why the African slave trade in the 1700s and 1800s was morally wrong. Because for any race to claim moral superiority in the name of Christ, is just wrong doesn't do it justice. It's an abomination for this to happen. But how far can we extend this teaching? Now, I believe that sectarianism in our city is now a blend, a blend of racism, football hooliganism, religious hatred, and good old-fashioned thuggery. And, but I think we can apply the teaching here. Imagine, imagine if we were receiving this letter for the first time. We'd never heard of Galatians before. It wasn't even called Galatians. It was Glaswegians. The letter to the Glaswegians. And we read this. There is now no Rangers or Celtic. There is now no Protestant or Catholic. There is now no Irish or British. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. The scope of this teaching is huge. It's massively, massively important. And we can say similar things when we come to the next bit, which is about slaves and free people. Now, there aren't many slaves in the room today, I don't think. But if we extend this beyond being a bondservant, being a servant, being a butler, whatever, and being a master... If we just talk about social status, we can't subdivide people by social status in Christ. We just can't do it. We cannot show partiality to people we like or who are similar to us or who make us feel good or who make our lives easier and then just shun the other people. We can't do that. It's not on the cards. So Jesus' brother James talks about this very thing in his letter. And it reads, uh, James 2. My brothers, show no, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The answer is yes. We would have made distinctions among ourselves and made judgments with evil thoughts and this makes sense in terms of like the fashion of the christ the heavenly fashion because if we're all wearing the same thing then all distinctions are removed if we're all clothed in christ then i can't say i don't like your shirt and now i was aware today as i walked in having you know prepared this over the last couple of days that i was calling it the fashion of the christ and i see nick nick treadgold in an amazing shirt ian moorcroft in an amazing shirt mark spicer in an amazing shirt and myself in this 10-year-old shirt I got for three pounds at a market. Um, but all these melt away. All these shirts are, become second to who we are in Christ. All, this, all these distinctions, they just, just go. And when we come to being male and female, in the Roman Empire, when this letter was written, women were treated at, as being at best subservient and that they they needed to be held under a guardianship of either uh, a father or a husband. Now, Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher, wrote that all women, because of their innate weakness, should be under the control of guardians. I don't agree with him. Now, at worst... So, at best, women were held under control of guardians. At worst, women were regarded as little more than property. Women could not vote. No woman could vote or hold public office. And at the time that this was written a woman could never pay a job. Women had very few rights. So, imagine being a woman in this church, in one of these churches. When you come to this passage and you read, there is now, now now neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, nor is there male and female. It's a total game changer. It's totally revolutionary. Now, imagine, as I said, being a woman in this time and place where your role in society was whatever your husband or father told you it was, where you had the same rights as a a child, or an animal. And rather than believing that you were a special creation of God, rather than believing you were a daughter of the Most High King, with a God-given purpose, you were told by society that your purpose for existing was to bring more sons into the world. And then imagine hearing this passage in your church. Nor is there male and female. Gender divides are overcome. Gender ceases to be the casting vote. And as it turns out, the fashion of the Christ is unisex. It looks good on men and women. Now, what this passage is saying is that if you're male, female, slave, free, Jewish, Greek, Roman, Scottish, English, French, whatever, if you're a Christian, you're clothed in Christ. And as the last bit of verse 28 says, all are one in Christ Jesus. There is a union that trumps all other elements of a person's character. Now, that's not to say that differences are done away with. I am clothed in Christ... And I am a man. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you find that funny, Phil? <laughs> um, I'm, yeah, I'm clothed in Christ, and I'm still British. The differences are not done away with, but they're no longer the casting vote of your identity. So we see this in Revelation, where every tribe and people and language is represented. They have it all blended into one, um, but in Christ, the distinctions are relegated to being second. They're just, they're part of who we are as people, rather than the the determining factors in how we can approach God. In Christ, my gender, my race, and my social standing is not abolished, it's redeemed. It's made better than it was, and I'm clothed in Christ. And this is my third point, and final point. If we are clothed in Christ, our differences melt away. Or to quote the preeminent thinker of our time, our our differences are only skin deep, But our sames go all the way down to the bone, Marge Simpson. (laughs) So, what does it all mean? What does all this mean? What are we to do in response to this? Well, firstly, number one, there are no mediocre Christians. You can't be a mediocre, um, subpar Christian. All are children of God, and we have to get this. We have to understand that. Now, it's not a difficult, sorry, it's not an easy thing to understand. Mentally, You can't properly um, process it just in your head. It's got to be more than that. Because c- well, theology without experience is dangerous. Now, I love theology. But if you just sit in your study and read John Calvin for the rest of your life, your life won't be very long. Um, theology without experience is dangerous. We talk about being children of God, but we have to approach the father it's, it's, it's practical, it's not just theoretical there's a practical application to this um, all Christians are looked upon and loved as much as God loves Jesus it's, it's that broad and now interestingly a few weeks ago when you two were playing at Glastonbury they, you two are very cool or they used to be cool and they're still trying to come back they've been trying to come back for about 20 years um, I'd really like you to, but while they were playing their songs, they were flashing up random phrases on the screen, and one of them was "guilt is not of God." And I think they're right. I can't find it in the Bible. I find lots about God acquitting the guilty, God not declaring us guilty, or people coming to God and saying, "I am guilty. I'm sorry," but guilt is not something God puts on us, because if we're clothed in Christ, Christ who had no guilt and no sin. And we are declared righteous in the sight of God, regardless of our position in the world, gender, race, etc. And because of this, we, dec- we can approach the throne of God with confidence. We're not trying to buy our way in. We're not trying to bluff our way in. And also, the claim that we have on being able to approach the Father has very little to do with us, and it certainly has nothing to do with our income or our race or our gender or whatever. It's because of what we're wearing We are clothed in Christ. That is the condition to get in. That's the dress code to get into heaven. I'm sorry you're not wearing trainers. And you go. No. I'm sorry you're wearing trainers. You can't go in. I I don't go to clubs very often. Actually, I've never been to a club. As you can obviously tell. Yeah, so being able to approach the throne of God with confidence is about who Jesus is, not about who we are. Being clothed in Christ enables us to engage in worship in ways that we never dream possible. To engage in generosity beyond our means. Time, cash, people, whatever. And to experience a love that is more profound than we can ever imagine. Or that in our natural sense we can ever think about or dream about or deserve. We come to God clothed in Christ, wearing the fashion of the Christ... And we get everything that's coming to Christ. This is a great deal. This is a wonderful deal. And this is why we worship. We worship God because of who Christ is. And we are mightily blessed in the process. Um, I'm going to pray to close. And then I'll hand back over to Phil. Lord, God, thank you. Thank you that my efforts are not what gets me relationship with, with you. Lord, thank you that you are a loving father who loves his kids and that you made a way for us at the cross. Lord, show us more about who Jesus is and what he's like. Lord, I pray that you would abundantly bless everyone here today.